This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. Today's episode features Michael Mendenhall, Senior Vice President, Chief Marketing, and Communications Officer at Trinet. On this episode, Michael talks about building award-winning campaigns, the future of marketing, and much more. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have a special guest back for the second time. Michael, what's going on? Oh, look out. Uh, thank you for having me back. Good time the first time. Yeah, great time the first time. Thank you for uh, for all of our listeners and the lovely feedback. Uh, everybody loves your stories, and we brought you back for more stories. So let's start <laughs> off with the one we were just telling. Are you about. aging me by saying that? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm aging myself. Um, I, we were just telling a story off air that I had not heard before. So let's get into it. I asked jokingly, quippant to say who won the 1987 World Series as we were mic testing. And you had an interesting story. So tell me this. Well, you know, I think when we spoke last time, you know, Michael Eisner was a CEO that really believed that we should be incredibly well-rounded in the company relative to the different disciplines, the different business groups. So we really understood the, the power of what he called synergy, which is really, you know, a collection, like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And this is how we built franchises. So he would move people around. I mean, you know, I'll give you one example. Steve Burke started at the Disney stores and wound up at ABC, wound up in the parks uh, while I was over there at Euro Disney running uh, the theme parks. Uh, now, of course, he's a senior executive at Comcast with NBC Universal. You know, I started out in theme parks, Walt Disney Parks and Resorts, uh, then was moved into the studio. And while at the studio, I was given other projects. So it wasn't like you stop your day job. It was like, well, you'll have two jobs now. And and one of those was when we acquired the Angels uh, down in Anaheim and decided we would rebuild at that point the stadium and make it more advantageous for the guests who were coming to, to watch the games. He really believed that sports at that point was entertainment. So if you go all the way back, you know, you've really now seen that come to life. He was one of yeah. the early, you know, executives that really believed that it was. And so now we're looking to one, rebuild the team, rebuild the stadium uh, and go to market. And so he said to me, you know, we want you to handle the sales and marketing and the entertainment, because it is entertainment, for the new team and the new stadium. I told him, I know nothing about sports marketing, (laughs) and I don't know anything about season tickets. I sort of understand pieces of the entertainment, cap day, bat day, that really engage, but you're looking for something a lot more. Yes, yes, we are, and we want to make this a piece of entertainment as well. So I would really work during the day up at the studio in Burbank, and I would drive down to Anaheim in the evenings and I'd work till about 10, 30, 11 o'clock with the teams down there. We had to rebuild the teams, uh, you know, the sales team, the marketing team and entertainment. We brought a lot of our entertainment people in uh, from parks and resorts at that point. While I'm still doing the marketing for all of our feature films, I'm now am doing sales, marketing, entertainment for the angels. We actually figured that all out, learned it quickly and took the team that year uh, to the World Series and we actually won. That's remarkable. How you talk about like the flexibility of marketers and going from essentially two different pieces of entertainment that people definitely didn't associate with one another, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, sports and at at that time you're talking parks, you're talking, I mean, because obviously Disneyland is right there. You're talking this, you know, Burbank to Anaheim to all of this area, this little triangle, uh, for lack of a better word, 
this entertainment triangle that we kind of all know now is is really obvious, but back then it doesn't. doesn't oh no! Even... Now when you go to the Chase Center and you see the Warriors or yeah. any of these arenas, it's the show. There's a yeah. show. There's a show that happens before the game. There's a show that happens after the game. You know that didn't exist back in 2002 when we were doing this. So we were really sort of in the forefront of this. Uh, then you bring in the idea of the acquisition of Cap Cities ABC. And at that time, we now had to integrate two different cultures into uh, one culture, which was the, the Disney culture. And through that, wound up with ESPN. And because one of my roles at the studio was to build franchises. So, you know, I would have to think about this is a, a primarily a motion picture. Do we believe there will be a sequel based on trends? Uh, or does this go direct to video at that time or direct to DVD? Then when does the streaming piece come into this and syndication So on TV? So you had to build out a whole plan as to how we'll build the franchise. We also then had to look at all of our assets to do that. So I would work with consumer products on soft line and hard line. And, and what does that look like? I'd work with publishing, right? So as you start to get into this whole sports thing, you know, one of the things that they attached me to right away was the idea we want to do these X games. So the first X game, I was very involved in how are we going to position this? How are we going to go to market? And how do I leverage the assets of the company to make this a success? So there was a lot of work that I did in sports relative to that. And then the introduction of the ESPN magazine, right? So we're using our publishing arm to actually get involved and build out that magazine and the concept of it. So I was very early on with all of these sort of concepts and building out these brands and these franchises so that, you know, some of these things could be worth well over a billion, some of them tens of billions of dollars for the company. And it was the sequencing, the strategy and the sequencing of all of that. I was just going to say, flash forward to today. I mean, it seems like those lessons, you know, with how, all of the Marvel movies, how they sequence all of those into this, you know, gigantic piece with, you know, ending with Avengers Endgame and all that stuff. It seems like a lot of those lessons were kind of maybe forgotten in the middle, middle part there and then kind of relaunched. But it seems like you kind of really were moving on the experiential, the the storytelling aspect, the content. The aspect. narrative, the yeah. narrative. Well, narrative was always important at Disney. That was one thing you know, Michael and the company were very focused on no matter what we did, you know, what is the story and and what are you communicating? Whether it was short form or long form, mm -hmm. it was really about that piece and the narrative piece that became really, really important. But I wanted to go back to the, the synergy piece because, you know, there was the one thing Disney has succeeded at doing and it really takes the senior executive, whether it's Bob Iger or Michael Eisner, to really buy into this idea that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And what I mean by that is, you know, most business groups in a company, each of those presidents or senior executives are compensated on their performance. But at the end of the day, they, it all adds up. The sum, right, becomes really important. So as you begin to build franchises and you begin to build a strategy relative to all of those functions within your company and all those different divisions, at certain times, one company is going to benefit more within the company yeah. than another. And that's where the friction takes place. So, you know, every week we had a meeting on Synergy and each of the heads of all the businesses had to come together and we defined what the program was for the company for the year. So what were the key initiatives that we all had to deliver on as a company, right? Not as just an individual, you know, part was the sum. These were these were the initiatives that the sum would be held accountable to, which was the what the company needed. And so there was friction at times in yeah. these meetings because some would say, well, I, I'm going to give this up, but I'm not going to benefit my group and I'm going to spend an effort doing this. But it was that as a whole, the company actually does better. Our shareholders do better uh, and the performance is better. So yes, we understand based on what you'll be compensated for that you're actually participating in a synergistic effort in the company. And he would hold them accountable to this. So we would you know, go around the room and we there would be presentations from each of the businesses is, what are you doing relative to this, to this plan that we have? How are you executing it? 
And so that's where you really began to see, and you still see it today. It's really interesting for me to watch, having been out over 13 years, you know, that they're still, they're still doing this quite well. And what I mean by that is you would launch like The Lion King, mm-hmm. or I'll, I'll give you an example, a better example, Mulan, right? And we knew at that point in time that Michelle Kwan, who was a world-class figure skater and mm-hmm. has won medals, actually grew up as a young child with her father reading the story of Mulan to her. Wow. And that and that was something that impacted her in what she thought about herself and her goals as a female athlete. And so we used that as a piece of how we went to market with Mulan. And we actually brought her in as, I would say, a promoter mm-hmm. uh, of the film because she was so attached to it personally. And then we decided, ABC decided, well, you know, at that point, ice specials were really important, uh, certainly to women and moms. And so we developed a whole concept and a whole hour-long program on ABC and Prime Time, where we reenacted the scenes, the key scenes from Mulan on ice with all the Olympic skaters, both male and female, with her being Mulan as the lead. And it did incredibly well on ABC. But that was ABC saying, here's how we can help. Yeah. We will develop a whole show, you know, and those those are multi-million dollar shows, right? And so that actually was a huge piece of the promotion. You see some of that today too. And they continue to do that. And and that's where this synergy piece becomes really important is how are we leveraging the assets of the company to build, a, you know, an enormous franchise that has great value to it and has longevity, right? Yeah, I mean, we we saw this just a couple of days ago with the launch of Disney Plus and with Scott Van Pelt on SportsCenter doing, you know, the promo for Mandalorian. You saw all of the ESPN personalities all tweeting about the promotion of Disney Plus. Like, I mean, it was well, all the, systems go. The, yeah, that's a that's a massive multi-billion dollar initiative for the company and they will they're using synergy which is one of the things that i i did when i was at the company to really make this a huge home run you're seeing mandalorian promoted at all of our parks when you think about the fact that you know 100 million people are going through these parks every year you know you you have enormous scale in promoting products that would be of interest so, you know, no surprise that you're seeing what you're seeing from a company that does this really well. And unfortunately, you know, I, I in this role now, work with other media companies, not just the, the Walt Disney Company. And I had to sort of teach them mm-hmm. um, this idea of, you know, synergy. And I'll give you an example. We were looking at new concepts around different channels within different media companies. And they still delineate, you know, the content provider of the company with the media sales divider of the company. And and I said, no, I'm not interested in, you know, just placing ads with you. I think you have an amazing team. You have an amazing creative team sitting over here. And I want access to that team. Sort of a new way of thinking about ad agencies. And that's another another whole story. But I mean, this is how we structured our entire company for this exact reason. It's like all of our talented creators should be working together with our customers to make the best stuff. Correct. And so and so that wasn't happening. So there was like this firewall. And the folks that were on the sales side, you know, because they commission these guys, they're all about the sale. And so they were all about like, well, what are you placing? And what's it? And I said, stop. Guys, I don't care where you place the revenue in your company. I quite frankly don't care. If I get great creative, we will place the content. It all hinges on the content and how world-class, how engaging it is, how interactive it could be. I said, then we'll talk about now where we place it and what's the best places. Could it be digital? Could it be another format, right? And so I eventually had to go to the senior vice president of the company. And I said, I'm going to tell you this. You figure this mess out. It's not my mess. You place the revenue wherever you want. I really don't care. But here's what I want. And he's the one that said, I get it. I agree. Understand the concept of synergy. I know you have a big background in it. We will work this out. And so he came back and said, we're, we're great. We're moving on the content. 
we're going to give you access to the full team. And off we went. But even to this day, the people that sit on the media side, the media sales side, you know, cannot get past the fact that you have to have great content. It's sort of like in our business at Trinet, you know, we have to have great service, right? We have to have great support and great service. And if we do that, this all follows. Yeah. Right. This, this will all happen, you know? And so let's not get caught up in just closing a sale. Yep. Right. So well, it's easier. I mean, I think that it it boils down to the fact, the reason why people love ad networks, the reason why people love why, you know, all of these things, they want the easy button, right? And it's a lot easier to buy a 30 second spot because those are the rules, right? Yeah. Like I, the, I just think, I just think I, I understand why we commission and try to incent the salespeople. But I think in, in the new world we're in, it has become problematic. For sure. And, you know, it really is about ideas and content, as you, you said earlier, that wins, that will differentiate you. It will build your reputation as a brand in a better way. And so it, it isn't this traditional sort of, you know, this is easy. We'll just do a presented by, or we'll just do sponsored by, and we'll just slap your thing on there. And this will go What are we talking about today? No one really cares about that. And don't really pay attention. They may be aware they're not paying attention. They're not engaging. No, definitely right? not. And, and so for me, we're going to this next year and I'm quite excited about it. And we won't say too much about it here, but we're going to sort of reinvent this, this whole idea of advertising uh, relative to content. And, and uh, I'm pretty excited about what our ideas are as you think about the power of OTT today and what can be accomplished and the desperate need for content from every different channel. And there's a cost to that. Um, and so I think there's a number of ways that a company or a brand can start to participate in what I consider production. So, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And it's one of the things that we've tried to build from the beginning here is if you have a project that you're trying to create evergreen content that is, you know, either intellectual property of some kind or something that endures, something incredible that endures, that people will, you know, celebrate for a long time, that they'll engage with for a long time. The people on that project should all be compensated for the success of the project, not just like a random salesperson. And like, Correct. You know, like I, I love salespeople to death. They have an important, you know, role, but also like the, the producer, the project lead, like all the people on the team, there should be they should be vested in the success of it, not Correct. just the paycheck that they're getting, which is obviously very important, but like they should well, want this to be be successful for 10 years. Correct. You know? Well, and that's, that's where you built that longevity, which I think is important. I think it's ever more important now with the amount of clutter that's out there, the amount of channels. Um, I like and, clutter. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> and it is. It really yeah, is. I see it every day. Um, and, and I think, you know, what's interesting to me, it's interesting, we were interviewing for a plug, we're interviewing for a VP of our brand experience. Oh, there you go. And, you know, one of the candidates as a follow-up said, you know, he loved what he saw relative to People Matter and the Trinet approach to humanity. And he said, hey, here's, here's a brand that I followed. Uh, it's very interesting what you're doing and what they have done for these boots. I go, boots, okay. So I'm reading it, I clicked on it and I watched this thing and I was like, this guy totally gets this mm -hmm. new environment having sent me this video. Yeah, and, and it really is about story and it was beautifully shot, beautifully done, world-class. I, I was compelled to like buy the boots at the end of this thing. Like, I, these boots are awesome. <laughs> and I never would have thought about it had I not seen that mini film they did. I don't know if it's the same boots, but on my flight to Australia a while back, I had the same experience where they had this like beautifully shot pair of boots that uh, they went through each of the levels of the thing. And it's same sort of thing. I, I got off the plane. I, I My buddy picked me up and I'm like, what are these boots? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to just look it up here. Um, and, and do you know the name of your boots? Uh, no, I should, I'll look it up here. Here, look up the name because, um, Huckberry, Huckberry. I don't know. Okay. I... You have to go to Huckberry. Um, 
they have a film and the film is beautifully done. I, I watched the film and there's a sense of humanity to the film. And that's why he sent it to me because we really based our whole campaign on humanity in a very authentic, candid way. And it was just beautifully done, almost like a documentary, like what we did with yeah. Galen Summers for our campaign, People Matter, and very compelling. I, I wanted to check in on the campaign. So when we last spoke, I believe the campaign was just about to launch. And it's more than a campaign. So for our listeners who who don't quite remember, kind of just describe the impetus for uh, for what you're building. Yeah. Yeah. So, we, you know, we started with humanity as being very important. I mean, we're a human resource, you know, a solutions company. And, you know, a lot of times people have categorized human resources as you know, a very functional sort of department in a company. A lot of times not favorably if you're in a big company. Um, you don't want the call from human resources. And then a lot of it is training. You're like agonizing mm-hmm. over all the training that you have to do to comply, you know, with legal requirements. And and so we really looked at, you know, what really does make up these companies. And we have 18,000 of them and over 320,000 employees that work for us as employees of record with us. And they're in like probably six different verticals, multiple different industries in those verticals and all doing just amazing things. And we were really focused on at that point on our own products and services and selling those. And we lost the idea of in human resources, the human piece mm-hmm. uh, and the idea of humanity. So we we used humanity sort of as this organizing idea and went in saying, well, who is that? And that's really our, these companies, our customers who are doing these amazing things. And our success at that point was based on their success. So the more they're successful, the more we're successful. If they grow, we grow. That relationship is very important to us. So, so it was, well, how do we help these companies scale and grow and become successful? And we, focused on them. And we started to look at all the different companies and what they were doing. And whether this was in in the science, life sciences world, where they're using genomes to attack cancer, or whether it was Hot Bread Kitchen, a nonprofit who is really enabling uh, a women, uh, disadvantaged women, to actually build a career and build an economy for their, their environment. And so, you know, we just saw, wow, these are just beautiful stories. And really, isn't this what the American dream's about when we start to look at the diversity of all of these companies and all of the people? You know, so whether it was the geography, their ethnicity, their age, their capabilities, you, know, you could just go down the line and say, wow, it's just this collection that builds these cultures in these companies. And they move quickly, they have great velocity, and they're having an impact. So this really is the American dream. It's not just the talk. It really is where this is happening when you think of 98%, you know, of all of our workers sit in this space. Over 40% of all scientists and engineers sit in this space. This is where innovation's happening. This is where society's improving itself and, and really making a difference. So we shifted our, our whole idea to focus on our customers based on humanity. And we came up with the idea of look at the human piece of human resources. You know, many of these companies and these the, these investors talk about as human capital. You know, I think that is like disgusting, quite frankly, <laughs> <laughs> um, that you're treating people as just capital. These are like individuals that have great talent. And so we, we focused on that. And that's where we came up with this idea that people matter. In light of where we are, you know, in the world, relative to respect, humanity. We thought it was an appropriate time to really step forward as a company and someone that works in this space of, you know, small, medium-sized businesses to make a statement, you know, that we are respectful. A lot of these companies are very humble and are doing just really incredible things. And we thought that that was a, a positive momentum that we wanted to create in this country relative to this idea that, you know, we we would build a concept that would have great meaning to people. Yeah. And very positive meaning because this is positive. And we hear so many negative stories about companies, big companies, whether it's fraud, it's this, it's that, it's sexual harassment. And we don't hear these stories. And so 
I really coined and we trademarked the idea of the business of the unseen. Mm-hmm. And we want these businesses to be seen. So we came up with the concept of people matter and have executed against that. We wanted everything to be very authentic and very candid. So there's no actors, there's no staging. In working with Annie Leibowitz, we really went back to her roots, which was kind of fun, and went back to where she did candid black and white photography uh, in her career very early on. That was award-winning. Some of you have seen some of that work. Uh, That was iconic. And we said, we want this to be candid. So no one knew we were bringing Annie into their environment. We showed up, The only the CEO or founder knew that she was coming. Uh, we wanted everyone to be authentic. Uh, a lot of times, some of them didn't know that it was her till we're halfway into the day. And they're like, isn't that like what? <laughs> <clears throat> and we got great, great candid shots that what was very interesting is that people have responded to the campaign to us, have said, this is beautiful. This is like authentic. This is not like stage. It isn't, you know, like stock photography. And these are, you know, our customers in all their diversity. And and so we've played that out with Galen Summers, who's an award-winning director in documentary film with T-Brand Studios with the New York Times. And we pulled that all the way down and then we did this expose on their company. We we interviewed all of the, the talent in the company and we took that and took all the sound bites and built a letter from the company to the founder or the CEOs. Uh, we didn't let them read it. Until, it was, it's remarkable, by the way, those stories are like, yeah. a, for our listeners, we'll link it up in the show notes, but for our listeners who haven't checked it out, the letter from the employees to the leadership is like really cool. So it's funny, I didn't tell you this. So <clears throat> last year we did a company offsite and we had everybody, our like first big one, we had everybody in here and we let the producers do an episode without like any of the leadership on. And they talked about leadership and they talked about like, what it means to like work here or everything and listening to that like i was like driving in my car listening to this episode like tearing up like oh my goodness this yeah. is intense but so when you when i saw that you did that i'm like oh this is i i yeah, yeah. No, what was really neat is because they were on camera when we had them read the letter as you said most of them did break down yeah because they have forgotten what they created. Totally. Because you're so busy driving a business and when you're a small, medium-sized business, I mean, it's, it's a grind. I mean, you're working like long hours uh, and, and trying to drive the growth in the company and you forget what you created, the culture you've built. And that was what was really beautiful in that. And so all of it was authentic, right? Because what we did for the, the whole piece is we had him read the letter and we used the letter as the voiceover for the whole mini documentary. And so you're hearing the founder CEO as we've already pre-rolled in all the shots we did of the company. And so we edited that together and he read all the way to where he read the end of the letter. And then we asked him, what do you think? What do you think about the letter? And then we get a very candid response. So everything was done in black and white, very candid, very authentic. And that's what we wanted uh, because we wanted the human piece to play out the people piece. And so early on, there's a long way around saying, you know, the people matter is an organizing principle, not a campaign, right? And that should last for over a decade. Uh, When I did Magic Happens for Disney, that lasted 15 years. You know, they were executing against that idea. And those become organizing ideas. And that that should never have to change, you know, year in and year out. Yeah. And one of the cool <clears throat> things that, you know, you just showed us and, you know, obviously this and I don't know what I can share here, but definitely, you know, this campaign is going to get submitted for all s- sorts of awards. We're watching a video of just all of the different engagements that you've done with this campaign. I mean, subway takeovers and amazing billboards and like all these different things. And it just feels so unified. Like, you know, it feels so thought out and thoughtful. And obviously it was a huge expenditure. And I'm just curious. Like, well, I wouldn't say huge. <laughs> well, well, I, well, I mean, it's, it's, no, I mean, I mean, I, I mean what, it's not, it's not exactly guerrilla marketing. Yeah, like here's what I can tell you. If you look in the B2B space and you look at a company's revenue and a percentage of that being spent in marketing, uh, we are, we are under half of what the industry standard is. Mm-hmm. So that will give you some perspective on a little bit of perspective on what we committed to this as a company. Um, I think, 
you know, one thing is we had no age agency. So we used a lot of specialty production companies that specialize in certain things yep. that we worked with directly. We became sort of the agency. So the unifying piece to the puzzle, we developed the creative people matter. That was our idea concept. The black and white was ours. I knew sort of what the creative direction should be given the different mediums. So we set out to find those companies that could produce that for us. And it's really co-production. So I, I remember my first meeting like with Annie and she's like, so black and white? And I go, yeah, uh, black and white. Because with lighting, black and white really allows you to see the soul of a person. More so, I think, than color. And she's just paused and she goes, okay, <laughs> black and white it is. And it was the, the co-production development of the ideas with these creative partners uh, that was very exciting. And I, I think, you know, we did create a very uniformed approach to this thing. We were very, very consistent about that. And in doing that, a lot of these people I know personally, like Annie Leibowitz, like Garson, you of you and co., you know, Sarah at Left Field Labs. And so I've had those relationships when I was at Disney doing really great commercial work. Annie did a very a famous campaign for me and Magic Happens mm -hmm. um, where we had celebrities involved in, in the campaign that lasted like 15 years. You know, I get reasonable rates from these folks based on relationships, quite frankly. It's a world-class campaign. It does not have a world-class fee attached to it. Well, but I think you, you know, you kind of alluded to the fact that when you uh, don't have to pay 10% in the middle. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> it's definitely 10% cheaper than, yes. uh, than, it, yeah. than it could have been. But, you know, what really strikes me and, you know, you talk about Steve Jobs and Michael Eisner and Bob Iger and these people a lot. But what it really feels like to me, like you. And Mark Hurd. Yeah, Mark Hurd, that you as you know, the chief marketing officer and chief communications officer, that you really take a lot of personal like emphasis on how the campaign is structured. Like you're not going to outsource anything to anyone that isn't their direct specialty. Um, and you're going to keep all of the, uh, you know, in this case, all of the trinet culture, you kind of feel like you own that. So yeah. I'm just curious, like why, and how do you go about doing that? How do you leverage your teammates to be able to bring those things to life? Well, I think, you know, it starts with your leadership, right? I've always been one to have a very lean team that is has great experience uh, in developing world-class product in marketing. And so for me, I'd rather hire very senior people that actually report to me um, and have a leaner staff because then there isn't a lot of time wasted, mm -hmm. right, in translating the ideas or the concepts or the programs. And so for me to have that agility and that velocity in executing was important. And to do that, I'd rather have senior people that have had such great experience that we can't afford to trip ourselves up. Yeah, um, We can't afford to make an enormous mistake. Uh, we don't have the funds to do that. And one of the things at Disney, certainly with Bob and Michael, was world-class. Like the work has to be world-class or we don't go to market with it. And that was not only the product that we would create, whether it be a, a theme park attraction or a film and all the iterations thereof, uh, but also the marketing, the promotion and, and the publicity around it. And so my concept for how I've created teams is build a world-class team that has great experience at the top and then have a leaner team that we can execute quickly and find the right partners. You reduce your fixed cost and it goes into variable and there's a lot more we can do. And so we really use, you know, our media partners as a creative team member. Yeah, totally. And, and what was really odd uh, in this campaign is I pulled them all together in a room and some <laughs> of them are competing with each other. Yeah, totally. Day to day. And I said, I really don't care. We're going to be one team. And the best ideas are going to win. And we're going to give you the briefs now. We're going to want, we want to work with you. That's why you're all here. It isn't like one's going to get one thing and one's going to get another, but the best ideas will win. And we pulled their creative team members. So their chief content officers were sitting in there with us. And we came up with 
some awesome ideas that you're going to see play out in 2020. So it's a really lean team, a senior team that has great experience, that produces world-class work and knows what that means. You know, I think it's really our middle management that that sits in my group, I think is really excited because they're learning every day. Yeah. And they're meeting new people every day that are world-class people. I mean, to sit and talk with Annie about the campaign and where this is going, you know, is exciting for somebody who's, a, you know, a manager and probably only has seven years, five to seven years experience. They're getting to work with world-class people. And so that's been exciting, I think, for the team. Uh, but that's sort of how I structure it, you know, low fixed, more variable, more agile, uh, more velocity, don't make mistakes. Do because th- the mistakes for us, based on our, our budget, are costly. Yeah, do you think- And we've made mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and like, what was the timing? The, the, the mistakes we made were hiring an agency. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, <laughs> The uh, And I'm curious, like, for the timing of something like this, it seems like you are pretty strongly in the camp of, like, let's get it right, not right now. Like, how did you kind of evangelize that to leadership? Uh, how did you evangelize that internally to say, we are not on a, you know, we're not trying to do this by next quarter. We're not trying to do this, you know, whatever. We're trying to do this the absolute right way. Well, <laughs> That's a good question. Um, we do have tight timelines. We had to re-architect a website that was in a closed system to an open headless system in two and a half months with all new creative, a whole new user experience. So when I say we are not under pressure to deliver in velocity world-class, we do have those. And again, that's about having senior talent in place who have done multiple websites, who understand all the different technologies and open APIs that can be brought in to help us, to give us insight, transparency, et cetera, in that, in that environment. So for me, we do have to meet some really tough deadlines, but that's where the idea of how I've structured the team comes into play because you don't have the mistakes, right? So you can start to move quickly with the right partner outside. And Left Field Labs was amazing. I mean, when we first told them what we had to do, they were like, "These you, you guys are really crazy. And we're like, no, we're not. And we're going to execute this. And we're going to do it quickly. And we're not going to have what a lot of people consider is this very operationally driven, mm-hmm. process driven, you know, step this, step that, get this approval, get 20 people to approve, which drags everything down. We really had no approvals. We were moving like this. Yeah. I, I was the one that made the calls and I would just show show them to our CEO. This is what we're doing. Here's what we're doing. That was it. And off we went. And, it seems and we like, had a CFO that's like, just keep going. Keep yeah. moving. Don't stop. When your CEO gave great, great voiceover work for the for the video you showed me, yeah. but it seems like your CEO obviously is aligned. Was this something that when you were coming into the role was like part of this kind of vision that you had? Well, that- it was interesting. And I, I don't like to... I don't like to talk about myself that way. So, <laughs> um, uh, you know, he basically said to me, I always knew I wanted to build a world-class brand and I couldn't find the, like the right person to do that. And when Ray Bingham, who was chairman of the board at Flex, who I worked with, uh, he was on the board of Fusion IO mm-hmm. when we sold that to SanDisk. He was chairman of the board at Flextronics when we made it Flex. Yeah. And he was chairman of the board at Trinet. And so he introduced me to Burton saying, here's your guy to build the brand you want. And so when Burton saw my background, met with me twice, he'll tell you, became very aggressive in trying to hire me. And at that point, I didn't know what Trinet did. Um, and I went to their website. I'm like, I still don't know what you guys do. And so we had meetings and I began to understand where the real richness of Trinet is and what they actually do was so important to our economy. 50% of the GDP sits in this space and what they did and what they provided and the companies that they've grown beyond meat. I mean, that's one of a current, still a current customer. Mission.org. Yes. Another current customer. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. When you were saying you're like, uh, you know, the 300,000 plus employees, employees a record. I'm like, three are sitting in this room right yes. now. Yeah. Awesome. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you're, you're loving our, 
service. <laughs> and we're up and we're up to 17 FTEs now. So we've, I, since we, I mean, we, I think we've doubled since we've so been we on So we have to put ahead. you in the campaign. Yeah, there you go. Um, but no, it really is. And I think I sort of- Did I answer that? I, no, <laughs> I, went on, I went on a tangent. There. No, no, you definitely answered it. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and uh, you know, I know you are not going to want to sit there and talk about, you know, yourself a bunch, but I do think it's really important, you know, for our listeners and for other marketing leaders to kind of like realize the trajectory in which building world-class things and being someone who has a track yeah. record <clears throat> of building. That- well, I think it's about leadership, which, you know, Disney was really, really, really focused on is building leaders that are well-rounded. I talked about mm-hmm. the well-rounded piece of this. And so, you know, for me, it's about that. And I have been fortunate to have in my career and not only great mentors, from Eisner, Iger, Steve Jobs, Mark Hurd, but also to have people that support me, that also take my ideas, my concepts, and bring them to life. And I can't do that alone. Um, and some of these people come with me from company to company, yeah. which is a great testament to, I think, the culture that I build. But But they enable me to execute my vision, which is what I loved about the companies I've worked for. You know, Mark Hurd sort of gave me a clean slate to help rebuild uh, HP. And we did just that in the time, the, you know, the three and a half years that I was there with him. And at Disney, we were given that carte blanche. I mean, no idea was, I would say, too stupid. Mm-hmm. They, they, they love thinking out of the box. And it was my teams that helped me execute these things. Like the idea that we, we were paying attention very closely Dancing with the Stars was doing quite well when we launched yeah. that over 10, oh God, we're thinking about that 15 years ago. And it was going to come into the summer. And I said, well, why don't we take, an, and the hot team was Michael Phelps, Lenny Kraselberg, Ian Crocker, this whole team that had done so well in Athens. And they were going to come back. And I said, why don't we do a swim with the stars and let's do a whole program for kids in all the pools. We'll transverse the entire country on a bus with them. We'll trick it out the bus and we'll go to these pools and we'll, we'll work with kids, you know, that are, that they're learning to swim. We'll work with local swim teams, et cetera. And then we'll come to Disneyland and at Disneyland, we'll build an Olympic sized pool down main street. And we'll bring the winners uh, from all these different communities across the country into Disneyland to compete with the Olympians in the pool on Main Street. People are like, you guys are out of your mind. Yeah. And we're like, no, we're going to do this. And our engineers figured out, and this is complicated because the weight of an Olympic pool full of water and should those sides break with all these people standing around, you have a catastrophe on your hands. Yeah. So we had to engineer how to build a pool on Main Street, which is a curved surface, fill it with water that was heated, and then how to dissipate the water because if we flushed it, it would screw up the sewer system in Anaheim. Yeah. So there was a whole program to all of this. We actually did it. The worldwide press and photos and aerials that we got from this was amazing. And down the center of the pool said Disneyland. And it was like amazing. That was one idea, right? And so you have a team of people who are like, as crazy as it is, we're going to make this happen. But see, and, and, and so, you know, I, I get enabled to do these things. Like when we launched Tarzan, we went to Times Square and we found a troupe that actually choreographs to music dancing down a skyscraper. And so we had them all dress up as the characters from Tarzan with the Phil Collins music. And we had a whole display. I mean, you people would have, people thought we were nuts. And, but it was like so dramatic. And the press around the world on this stuff was we couldn't have bought that. But how do you how do you even justify the ROI on those things? Because I think that that's one of the pieces that a lot of CMOs want to do. They want to take you know calculated risks, but it's like, oh, well, what's the ROI? On well, something? well, it's well, it's sort of like out of home at times. If you do well, it's instantaneous awareness. Yeah, instantaneous globally. 
You don't have to do anything else. We don't have to spend the money. Yeah. You know, you could you could spend forty, fifty million dollars marketing a film or more in some cases, and you don't have to spend that. It's instantaneous. It's forget it. And it's all, you know, attributed to this event. And then when you begin to look at all the gross impressions, but more importantly, the third party endorsements, right? So it's credible. It's not us advertising to somebody. Well, I you know, and we were talking about Disney Plus and the Mandalorian. And I I think that this is one of those brilliant ideas because how much advertising did we see for the Mandalorian in which it all said, get it on Disney Plus, right? So it's like you're advertising content that people want to see this new show. You're not just saying Disney Plus everywhere. Correct. You're saying, oh, this is the content. This is the new thing that you're only going to be able to get here. And it's a way easier integration yeah. than just, you know, shoving yeah. an, an app like application. And they did a ton. Know? They did a ton of events. Yeah. Big events. They spent a lot of money on events. Yeah. Well, I know we got to we gotta get you out of here uh, in, in a little bit, but I did want to, um, I did want to ask, we talked a little bit about last episode about like early Toy Story redos, rewrites, this sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> Something that's very popular on on our team uh on our team admission here uh, is the idea of rewrites because it can be really painful. But I want to know like how when something wasn't world class and whether it was with Steve Jobs or whoever and you had to do a rewrite as a leader, how did you structure those? How did you see people structure these? Well, it can be a rewrite or an attraction. I mean, I've been where we had a concept through Walt Disney Imagineering. We had the idea of how it was supposed to play out in narrative form that was interactive, right? And when we went into an early preview for just the executives to see, we were disappointed in how it actually got executed. It didn't work the way we thought it would. And so we shut it down. And this was multi-millions of dollars. And, you know, went into a rework because it wasn't world-class. And we were like, there's no way we can, you know, this is, this could be bad for the guests. And so, so we would, we, and that costed several more millions of dollars to just hold. So lost revenue as well as the investment in capital we had to make to fix it. You know, we've done that with feature films where, you know, we have a story, we gave notes that sometimes the director wouldn't accept the notes. And we were like, well, you're going to need to do this or we're not going to release this picture, right? And so there's negotiations that go on to make it world-class. And at the end, it was better. And the director said, those were the right corrections. And I'm glad you kind of pushed us to do it. But, you know, you're a creative, right? I mean, like, you know, these type of, like, how do you take notes, you know? Because I think it's just something that's really tough when you're just so close to the project. Well, I, I, I'll change an idea mm-hmm. if I think it's better, mm-hmm. for sure. And I'll build on an idea. And, you know, I'm not the only idea factory at TriNet. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so I, I've taken ideas from external partners who will say, you know, we think you should do this. I'll argue a little bit. And then I'll give it consideration. I'll say, okay, no, all right, we'll do that. Or I'll argue with them and they'll come my way. So that's a real give and take. Ultimately, I think you wind up with better work because you can get too close to some of your creative. For sure. And and then you could make a mistake. So I'm always, I always have people I, sit, I do a soundboard on relative to these ideas. When we first did People Matter, I got, a, I got, I had anxiety. Of course. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this could happen. That, oh, someone could perceive this to be negative. Oh, the, you know, and so I was like, am I doing the right thing? Was my gut instinct right on this? And so I bounce it off of people, family. I have kids who are very critical of my work all the time, <laughs> as you can imagine. And they'll tell me, you know, that's interesting. And then I know they're not being honest with me. Uh, on people matter like, no, this is a home run. And then I question myself like, no, you're a fool. Absolutely do this. Absolutely do it. So I sounded, I'm always soundboarding stuff on people that, you know, I respect or family that I respect that they'll be critical of me, that they're not just going to try to placate me. I love it. 
Michael, this has been awesome as always. Thanks again for stopping by. Any final thoughts? No, no. I would just say stay tuned for 2020 and what we're going to bring to market in, in creative and content. I love it. So yeah. excited. Talk soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is created by the team at mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.